but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all those who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. Rather, your seed shall be called through Isaac. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Rather, the children of the promise are counted as seed. For the word of the promise is this. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but also Rebekah having twins from one act with our father Isaac. Yet, before the sons were even born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose and choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Thank you, Bix. We're gradually meandering our way through Romans chapters 9 and 10 and 11. Um, and if you were here the last couple of Shabbatot, you will remember, hopefully, unless you uh, were lacking your shot of caffeine, um, I'm good. I, one of our guys donated a whole vent, venti uh, caffeine, so uh, hope you've had yours. Um, we are part of the challenge of being in a Messianic Jewish congregation is that uh, A, we have uh, um, folks who come who have all kinds of ideas who we are, what we should be, by the way, which is why we have a membership class to make sure that we lay out exactly uh, what what we believe is the vision and uh, for everybody, but part of the picture is that we interact with two different types of communities: uh, the Jewish community that has always thought we were little mishugi, and sometimes they're right. Um, and as I mentioned last Shabbat. Um, at this point, attitudes have been changing, um, and if you recall uh, the Pew Research um, survey came uh, determined that 34% of people in the Jewish community feel that it's okay to believe in Jesus and as a Messiah and still be Jewish. Um, uh, my sarcastic inclination is to say thank you very much, but um, but uh, seriously, the other issue, of course, we interact with fellow believers, um, and I don't have hard, fast statistics, but I've heard it said that somewhere around 60% uh, of people in the worldwide believing community, the body of Messiah, the church, uh, are convinced that God has finished with the nation of Israel, that he's basically taken the approach, I'm done with you, um, I'm sick to death of your shenanigans, I'm throwing you on the ash heap of history. And uh, 
I have also seen, been seeing significant changes uh, among fellow believers over the last 20, 30 years to where there's, on one hand, a greater degree of um, sympathy or interest in Israel uh, on the part of fellow believers who are Gentiles. And by the way, uh, Yeshuatzion Gentile is not a uh, pejorative t t term. It's basically a label, um, neutral label. Um, where was I? I just lost my train of thought. Gentiles, thank you. Um, and, and so I'm, we've been seeing a change. However, every so often I'm reminded that attitudes are still very much embedded. And one of our gals gave me um, a clip that has been um, put forth on YouTube by a very popular preacher uh, who leads a church of about 30,000 people um, in the U.S., in which uh, he made some statements that curl the, uh, my non-existing hair in the back of my neck. And uh, I just want to read some of the statements he made, um, not to scandalize you, but simply to uh, point out the fact that there is a lot of attitude among fellow believers about God's place for Israel that I don't see as fitting with, with what Scripture has to say. And that's been part of the impetus for the series. Um, he, among other things, he says that uh, the Jewish scriptures, by that he means the Old Testament, uh, he sees God's moving uh, as violent, disturbing, and it, defends, it offends our modern senses. Uh, Christianity, on the other hand, is a new world order completely detached from anything that came before. Um, hang on, there's more. Um, God's arrangement with Israel should be eliminated from the equation. Uh, specifically, Acts 15 teaches that the Old Testament is not the go-to source for any behavior in the church. Um, and furthermore, to sort of uh, top uh, the, the icing on the um, uh, rather disgusting cake is that um, God is done with the Jewish law. And furthermore, uh, believers in Jesus... Uh, should not obey the Ten Commandments. Um, now, I don't know what Bible he's referring to, um, but uh, where, where this uh, fellow is coming from is that he uh, was raised in a believing home. His father was a, also a very famous preacher. Um, he went to college and was taught about the creation myths, and that shook his faith, and he came back to realize that you don't need all this extraneous stuff in the Old Testament. Uh, all you need is Jesus and the resurrection, and you're good. 
And so that's been his mantra, so to speak. And that's been what he has been um, putting forth. Uh, I'm very grateful to tell you, fortunately, that that does not represent the entire body of Messiah, the church. I have some wonderful, wonderful friends who are men of God, pastors of various different types of churches who do believe in the Jewish scriptures, uh, regularly preach from it, and more to the point, they live by it. Um, so what I'm saying is kind of scandalous. However, it's there. Um, and so part of the reason why I felt led to uh, we have felt led, Rabbi David and I, who, by the way, and please pray for him. He has been not feeling well this week. Um, why we've been feeling led to get into Romans, particularly chapters 9 to 11, is to reemphasize that our vision, the vision of Yeshua Tzion, doesn't come from our fertile imagination, but it comes from what the Word of God states clearly, not only in the Tanakh and the Old Testament, uh, but as well uh, in the New. And if you were here last week, I mentioned the fact that the word Jew or Israel appears in the book of Romans about 11 times out of 16 chapters. So chapters 9, 10, and 11 here are not merely some kind of a parenthesis, an oops on the part of Paul uh, who is having, uh, he's reminiscing about his, his past and so on, and, and sits down to write. Uh, this is definitely a continuation of what has gone on before in the book of Romans, but frankly, what has gone on before in all of Scripture. And part of what I mentioned and I want to mention again is if you take Israel out of the equation, you have a very capricious and very inconsistent and untrust, untrustworthy God. And the opposite of that, if on the other hand, you clearly see Israel having a role in God's plan, then you have a leg to stand on in terms of taking the promises that have been made to you as an individual and saying, I can take that to the bank. Because God is faithful. The same God who was faithful to the people of Israel is still faithful. He's faithful to me. And I can expect that my relationship with him is based on some solid, solid ground. Um, and Paul, if you remember, wrestles with the question of, of what on earth is going on? Because at this point he had been preaching, evangelizing, and so on for 25 years. And there's been tens of thousands of Jews uh, who had come to faith in Yeshua, including uh, actually tens of thousands of Torah-observant Jews who have come to faith in Yeshua. Uh, but a huge chunk of the nation, the majority of the nation, uh, has chosen to reject Yeshua. And Paul is struggling with that question, particularly since people in, in Rome uh, and other places threw that in his face as indicative of the fact that his ministry is not valid. If your ministry was valid, 
why do you have so many Jewish people not accepting Yeshua? And that obviously is something that's very modern, very germane to us, uh, because at this point, uh, Yeshua believing Jews make up less than 1% of the total Jewish population in Israel and here. So we have to say, ask the same question that Paul does in, in verse 6. Uh, has God's word failed? In other words, has God's train derailed and gone off the track? And I hope that your go-to position on that would be an absolute no, absolutely not. Uh, God's train never goes off track, whether or not we understand it, see it, and are able to articulate it. And I want to park here for a few minutes because part of our reality is that we tend to look at our circumstances, what we can see and, and hear and smell and perhaps discern with our uh, cognitive ability and say, that's reality. I can put my hands around it. I can uh, visualize it. I can understand it. Therefore, that's reality. Well, Jewish answer, yes and no. Um, because what we see in the Word of God here, in the, uh, what we will see, uh, and by the way, we'll be running a few minutes late, um, is the fact that we who are followers of Yeshua, we who are sons and daughters of God, have to be able to step above our reality and see perspective from God's point of view because, yes, we have to deal with the reality that's on the ground um, or else they take us away and lock us up. Um, but beyond the reality that's on the ground, we have to say God is always at work invisibly accomplishing things that we cannot see with our own eyes until God sees fit to pull back the curtain and say, hello, let me give you a clue. That's what revelation, the Greek word apocalypsis actually means, uh, is that God pulls back the curtains and gives us a view of what's really going on. And so at any given time, yes, we have to look at reality, we have to understand it, but we have to say, uh, what we see may not represent all of reality, and that's basically part of what Paul is saying. And, of course, he is basing his thoughts on what he has read elsewhere in the prophets. And we looked at Isaiah 55, my word that goes forth from my mouth, it will not return empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. In other words, it's the assurance that when God speaks, it gets done. Now, obviously, we need to be very clear in our understanding that when we, when we say the Word of God, we don't just uh, apply it to any Tom, Dick, and Harry who gets up in front of a microphone, including yours truly, um, but it has to be consistent with what the Word of God says. Um, and as Michael mentioned earlier, um, and Joanne as well, if it is the Word of God, folks, it will be validated by God's power. 
In other words, if, if it is what God speaks, he will invest his power in it to see to it that it somehow comes about. Otherwise, it's not God's word. And so, Paul is challenging these Roman believers who are primarily Gentiles, as far as we can understand, to recognize the fact that, yes, they are living in Rome, which is the capital of the empire, and yes, they, are, uh, they have special status and so on and so forth, but they need to recognize the fact that the one who controls reality is not Caesar, but God. And what Paul wants to bring out to them is the truth of God's sovereignty. And folks, this is a reality that we either understand and live by or else our, our life is very shaky, very wobbly. What does God's sovereignty mean? Two basic things. God has a plan. God has the power to implement that plan. Very simple. And we either believe in that or else our life is based on us. My plan, my strategy, how am I going to get things done? Or we step back and say, yes, I'm living life. Yes, I'm doing uh, my work, etc. Yes, I'm checking things off um, as far as uh, tasks, daily tasks, etc. However, in and through all of that, what really, really, really matters is the fact that God is at work and He is doing good things, even in a difficult set of circumstances. And that's, folks, where the rubber hits the road because when we run into difficult circumstances, our go-to position is that God has disappeared, is that he is no longer sovereign, that things are going, quote-unquote, to hell in a handbasket, and God is not doing anything about it. And as we see here uh, in Romans, so is it is true for each of us as individuals. We either grasp the fact that God is sovereign or else we live life that is very wobbly because we have no assurance that our security is in his hands. And sometimes it's difficult. You know, this week has been one of those. We've had a number of folks who have been sick. And uh, the challenge is always to say, okay, yes, Difficult circumstances, but what is God doing in and through your circumstances? So part of what Paul wants to point out to these folks is that God is committed to the people of Israel. And Paul, is a, as a first century Jew, of course, had all kinds of evidence to that effect. Um, as was pointed out earlier today, the people of Israel were just off the charts in terms of stupidity. You know, not that we are any different. You know, things are difficult, and then we say, God, why don't you bring us back to the desert, 
uh, even, even oh, excuse me, why don't you bring us back to Egypt where we had leeks and garlics, garlic, yes, uh, and all kinds of other good things. And we simply forget the fact that God has been and he will continue. Why? Because of his sovereignty. Because he is passionately and emotionally committed to his people. And you see that, folks, with the nation of Israel vividly. And I want to read a couple of verses from Hosea. I'd like to ask that you take a minute to turn to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea 11 verses 7 to 9. And a, a lot of times people have a hard time with the prophets. The prophets are raw sometimes. They're in the face. They're not exactly polite. But you get aspects of, uh, about who God is that you don't get elsewhere in Scripture. Especially about God's emotion. Hosea uh, eleven seven. My people are determined to turn from me. They're stupid. Even if they call to the Most High, and that can be translated differently, he will by no means exalt them. Especially verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. Why? Because I am God, not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. And this is a very unique vignette in Scripture where, where you see um, sort of a soliloquy, uh, sort of God standing off to the corner having discussion within himself. And he's basically saying, these guys have earned that I should zap them. But how can I do that? They're my kids. And, and I... Uh, my, my emotions are, uh, my innards are turned within me. Um, and, and the Hebrew word there has the sense of the emotions growing wa warm and tender. Uh, the arousal of the most tender affection. If you're a parent, you know exactly what, what that may look like. Sometimes your kids are downright obnoxious and, and not I'm not referring to anybody's parents or kids here um, and there's a part of you that looks at them and wants to do bodily violence to them because they push every single button that you have and then you look at them again especially when they're asleep <laughs> you know they're especially angelic and cherubic when they're asleep and you say, I can't punish them. They're my kids. And, and this is the same kind of sentiment that you have the, this angry, violent God of the Old Testament, the Jewish scripture, <laughs> stating. And so, yes, we talk about God's commitment 
to Israel in terms of volitional. He makes a decision. It's, it's an act of the will. And also an act of, of God's mind. But we need to take into consideration, folks, that, that Scripture, the Jewish Scripture, use a number of uh, very tender words that describe the love of God for the nation of Israel, especially in Deuteronomy. Not just chesed, which is covenant committed love, but cheshek, which is desire, and ahava, which is affection. And so part of what Paul is wanting to communicate to these folks is uh, God's word, God's plan, is not going off track for the people of Israel. Why? A, because he's sovereign. He's sovereign. He's got all the power. He's got the plan. And he loves these people. And then he goes on to talk about how that part of what we see here and also in Romans 11 is that God is creative, you know. Uh, he can figure out a way. He can somehow manage to find a way to get things done, right? You know, he doesn't run into, into a, a brick wall where he says, oh, I don't know what to do here. Uh, and part of his creativity that Paul tells us here and also in Romans 11 is that he has always worked through a remnant. You see that in, in the desert time when so many of the people of Israel were rebellious, but there were a small minority, actually two to be, to be precise. Um, and God did not reject the nation because of of the remnant. And, and I want to read a couple of verses in Romans 11, which we may get to at some point, um, where Paul says, Did God reject his people? God forbid, by no means. I'm an Israelite myself. People is exhibit A. Um, Elijah appealed to God against Israel. This is 11.1. Uh, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I'm still in control. I have reserved myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at this present time, there's a remnant chosen by God. And, folks, th th this is part of a perspective that you and I living in this world have to have. Because if anything, our, the society around us is not becoming more Bible-centered, in case you haven't noticed. Um, it's becoming more meshugging. And part of our inclination is to look at it and say, uh, God... Uh, where are you? What are you doing? Do you see that I'm here on, on, on a little life raft and there are sharks all around me? And, and God's response was, I'm somehow managing here. 
specifically, Paul goes on to speak, we're back in Romans 9, that what God does is he selects individuals, handpicks individuals to accomplish his work. Not because everybody else necessarily is evil, but he has specific individuals that he selects. And he talks here about uh, Abraham and, and Isaac. By the way, I don't know if you knew, uh, Abraham had seven other kids besides Isaac. They were not bad, they were not evil. By the way, Ishmael, uh, that was born to him through Hagar, had pretty significant blessings given to him by God. He was not part of the covenant, but he had all kinds of blessings. So Paul is saying, uh, all these guys came from Abraham, but there was one, one who was a child of the promise, child of, of the covenant. And so Paul goes on to say, the fact that someone is physically a descendant of Abraham does not mean that they're spiritually descendant of Abraham. Now, of course, people tend to jump on that and say something like, I'm not physically part of Israel, but I'm spiritually part of Israel, so I'm a spiritual Jew. I've heard that. Uh, a number of decades. And I want to simply point out that when, when Paul makes those kinds of statements, it's in-house criticism. He looks at Jewish people and says to them, yes, you are a Jew. Yes, you are circumcised. And that's wonderful. However, it's not sufficient. In Romans chapter 2, uh, where this discussion is even even more focused, um, Paul says a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. However, this is part of a context, a discussion where Paul is having a conversation with Jewish people, and he says to them, get off your high horse. Yes, you are a Jew physically. Yes, you've been circumcised. However, unless you have a relationship with God, you're really not in a good place. Romans 2.17, now if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the Torah and so on and so forth. So um, again, to come back to chapter 9, what Paul is saying is that God specifically handpicks individual, individuals for his purposes. And how that happens is a mystery. None of us can stand there and say, you know, I, I'm such a cool dude or I'm such a cool gal that God should definitely pick me. Um, if you feel this way, um, uh, we need to step off to the side and... Uh, we don't want Korach uh, 2.0 here. It's a mystery, folks. Somehow part of God's sovereign plan that he sees to it that 
his plans and purposes don't get derailed is that he selects individuals. It doesn't mean that everybody else necessarily is rotten, but it means that those individuals he picked to be part of his work, and in this case, part of the covenant relationship. Uh, of course, he talks about um, Rebecca and Isaac's children as well. Um, verse 11, here in chapter 9, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, uh, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older one will serve the younger, just as it is written, I have Jacob, I have loved by Esau, I have hated. I want to park here for a couple of minutes. Paul's point here is simply to say, uh, Jacob and Esau are a classic example of how God says, him I pick, him I don't pick. Her I pick, her I don't pick. Why? God knows. We can stand here and speculate till the cows come home or not. Um, and if you have been drawn into a special call by God, you say, God, thank you. I don't understand it. I certainly don't see myself as being more valuable than him or her. Um, you just stand in awe and you say, God, thank you. And I want to be sure that whatever purpose you've called me to, that I will be faithful in carrying out those purposes. And by the way, where it speaks here about uh, Jacob I loved, but he, Esau I hated, it does not mean that God literally hated Esau. That is a term of, of rejection in the sense of him I pick for a particular purpose, him I don't pick for a purpose. Um, remember that Esau grew up under the same household as Jacob did, under the spiritual leadership of, of Isaac and Rebekah. He had the same opportunities that Jacob did. Part of the dynamics was that God tapped Jacob, not Esau. All that is part of God's purpose in accomplishing things. And yes, we sometimes shake our heads because we don't understand. And of course, we want to argue or inquiring minds want to know. And we will know when we see the Lord, the Lord will give us a full accounting of anything and everything is always done, right? You're not sure. But Paul's point simply is um, when things are difficult, you don't step back and say, uh, God, A, God isn't working. B, God's plan is not working. You may say, I don't understand it. But above all, you have to say, whatever it is that God has designed will take place. And then you ask for God to give you holy chutzpah, bold faith, 
to say, God, whatever it is you have given me at this particular point in time in history, I want to be faithful to carry it out. I don't know about him. I don't know about her. I don't know about the society. All I know is that you have a relationship with me. You have a call for me. You have given me gifts. You have assignments for me. I want to be faithful in carrying those out. Because you're sovereign. Let's pause and pray. Lord God, we we do indeed sometimes shake our heads. Your plans and purposes, Lord, are higher. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But all we can say, Lord God, is we, we bless you and we thank you that you have, that you are in our life, that you are at work both to will and to do your good pleasure. Uh, we are amazed, Lord God, because we are utterly unworthy, Lord God. We thank you that your grace is so infinitely greater than, than we are. We simply pray, Lord God, for the eyes to see what it is you're doing in our life. We pray, Lord God, for the necessary grace from you, Lord God, to accomplish the purposes you have laid out for us. And we, we simply pray, Lord God, that in all things you would receive much honor and glory in our life. That not only in us will your kingdom grow, but that your kingdom will expand and touch others, Lord. We acknowledge, Lord God, that the time is indeed short. And we affirm, Lord Yeshua, what you said 2,000 years ago, that the fields are white unto harvest. There are people who are hungry, who need to know you, who need to experience your reality through our life. We pray, Lord God, equip us, fill us with your spirit for that purpose. We pray in the name of Yeshua. Amen.